We now come to the second of the two sons of God referenced in Scripture and we want to apply what we know uh, and have learned from uh, our discussions of the first son, Adam, uh, what we've learned about how the enemy deals with the son. I want to again remind you that all of the prophetic scriptures, whether we're speaking of Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Matthew uh, 24 in particular, uh, the book of Revelation, they all speak of a time in the world where what the enemy has been doing since, since he engaged Adam and Eve in the garden, reaches its apogee, reaches the fullness. So the theme of Scripture is that God established creation to produce a son in His image and likeness. There were models of that son, Adam, Christ, the fully mature son uh, as described in the book of Revelation. Along the arc of that process, is also the opposition to the thing God established creation to accomplish. The enemy is variously described as the devil, Satan, that ancient serpent, and this of course is from the book of Revelation chapter 12, and how all that he has built and done, this great beast it is finally called, that had three uh, predecessors, all of which are references to predatory, um, dehumanizing forms of governance, kingdoms that oppress people. And the final kingdom, described as a kingdom with great uh, iron teeth and bronze claws that devour, that that tramples down and that uh, uh, crushes the whole earth, but also wages war against the saints with one of the horns, one of ten horns, uh, that uh, comes up upon seven heads. This horn is given a mouth that spe speaks blasphemies against the saints, against the Most High, and against all the things that are in heaven. So this is the form of the war. It also utilizes economies to oppress mankind, to entrap them, it uses violence to make sure that nobody could wage war against the beast and so on. So it's a formidable presence and it requires the sons of God to engage him not as the sons of men, but as the sons of God. Now what does that mean? The son of man historically engages the enemy with his soul. The son of God we're about to see in studying Jesus engages the enemy with his spirit. 
In the spirit, we have direct access to the economies of the truth, the economy of heaven, against which the cosmos, the kingdom of darkness, has no power because it puts Satan back into his position as a creature who was created to serve God and to serve the sons of God. So now that we're about to look at Matthew 4, you will clearly see that the focus of Satan is on the question, are you the Son of God? I am not resolved on the issue of whether or not Satan himself knew that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, (coughs) but I don't think it matters. He's looking for the Son because he knows that whoever sees himself accurately positioned in Christ as part of the corporate Son, and indeed the whole of the corporate Son, has a destiny to disclose all of the works of the devil as being fraudulent, based on lies, based on a theft of power through deception, and cannot stand, cannot stand when the true sun comes. Because like the darkness is dismissed summarily with the light, the rising of the sun, the rising of the, of the glorious Son of God, clothed in the authority that Christ gave that sun in which to function, which will include, by the way, as we're speaking of the corporate man, it include more than just the individual knowledge that we are the sons of God and even acting out of that, it will include how we are arranged, how we are governed, how we, are, how we function, because that is in effect the manner in which we are presentable to God to carry His name, to carry His authority, to carry His image and likeness and all that goes with that. That is when we become the exousia or when we become the plenary potentiary, the manner in which the plenary authority of Christ has moved from potential to to actuality. Uh, So we become the plenipotentiary of the exousia, the executive authority of the dunamis, the power, all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in the very first chapter of the book of Ephesians, telling them that his goal was to convey the firmness and completeness of this information, of this revelation to them individually and as the corporate man. And and with that said in chapter 1, needless to say in chapter 6, he rolls out the armor of God, every piece of which is an understanding and a functioning in this divine authority 
and by the armor of God we can take our stand against the devil's schemes which in the compendium are the cosmos, whether we are speaking of the terrible beast of uh, Revelation uh, uh, 13 or Daniel 7 being the same beast and all of its grotesque appearance and all of its godless intents and the ferocity and unrelenting nature of the pursuit of the domination of all human beings by this instrumentality, coupled to the deception that arises when a second beast comes up uh, that works in tandem with the first beast who has been the recipient of the power, the throne and the authority of Satan in the earth. So the mysteries will lift, the, the fog of the mystery will lift as we approach these scriptures in Revelation knowing what we know from what has already been written because it is the same story. The book of Revelation and the prophetic scriptures are the unveiling of the fullness of both sides of the equation. On the one side, the Son of God becoming the fully attained corporate man whose destiny is to destroy the works of the devil and the firm and stiff resistance that all that the enemy has put in place since the theft of Adam's authority being shown and summarized in this compendium called the beast which is a kingdom that arises at the end of the age that dominates in the exact way but it, except in the fullness of it that he dominated Adam, deceived him and gained his authority. But in the way is Christ, in the way of that hegemony is Christ and there will arise at the end of the age that corporate son, the many-membered body of Christ, the many members in the one body, the many sons in the one son. Listen, the reason people are wanting to go to heaven when they die, uh, or rather the reason that people want to be raptured out of here uh, so that they could go to heaven and not have to face all of this, is there's no teaching on the destiny of the believer being formed into the corporate son whose responsibility is to destroy the works of the devil, overcome him. We think we're going to do that from heaven. What need do you have to go to heaven to accomplish this when the enemy has been thrown out of heaven? So I'll have a final piece today on the false doctrine of the rapture and it is a pernicious doctrine precisely because it has you focus on being lifted out, a thing that is not going to happen because you'll be here, some will be here when Jesus returns with the clouds of heaven but the folly of the doctrine and the reason it's demonic uh, 
is it diverts your focus from what God truly intends, which is that you arise to the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ with the intent of destroying the works of the devil. Don't you know that it is our destiny to judge angels? And we'll do it on the earth and we'll do it before the Lord comes back and we'll do it in a mighty way that cannot be stopped. But let's look at Jesus because He's the first of the overcoming sons, the first of the archetype. He's the archetype from whom we then become the current type. So let's look at the engagement of the enemy of the son, the son who, in whom the Father is well pleased. Let's, go, let's step back from Matthew chapter 4 to the events that had just happened in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the Son of Man was buried by the, by the prophet John the Baptist, functioning in the role of a Levitical priest. The role of the priest was to examine the sacrifice under the law of Moses and John was a fully qualified Levitical priest. In fact, he wasn't just a qualified Levitical priest, he was Mr. Super Clean. He had taken a vow of a Nazarite and he, he didn't drink alcohol, he didn't even, uh, he didn't cut his hair, he didn't shave his beard. <coughs> as external as, as holiness could be modeled, John was that. And by character, uncompromised. He called the scribes and the Pharisees a generation of vipers and warned them to flee the wrath of God that was to come. Fully qualified Levitical priest, Jesus comes to him and says to him as the priest, it becomes you as the priest and me as the sacrifice to fulfill the requirements of righteousness. You are supposed to examine me that, and find that I have no blemish and then you're supposed to wash me so I may be sacrificed. In that regard then, Jesus is baptized by John, but according to Romans 6 and because burial is, uh, baptism is a symbol of burial, Romans 6, if we are buried with Him by baptism into death. This symbol of burial applied to that which could die. It was appointed unto all men once to die. But Jesus came to John in the river Jordan as the Son of Man, as Mary's Son. He's buried and what comes up out of the water is approved by God Himself. Coming up out of the river Jordan is analogous to the sun arising out of the Word, all of the promises of Scripture concerning the coming of the sun. 
unto us a child is born, unto us a son will be given. Mary's boy, Mary's baby, the, and Jesus was born of the flesh in that regard, grew up to be uh, the son who is given and this is the transition from the, from the son of man to the son of God. When he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. Now typically oil is a type of the Holy Spirit, but here in this case, in the anointing of the Son of God, oil, the symbol, is bypassed for the reality. The Holy Spirit Himself descends on Him in the form of a dove and then God speaks out of the heavens. This is the fulfillment of the second psalm. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased because God is establishing re-establishing the regent of heaven upon the earth. The first son had dominion, this is the last son because all the other sons are spiritual and they are in this son and have to be born again of spirit in order to be assembled to this son because we are assembled according to 1 Corinthians 12 by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8 speaks to that, raises us up out of the water, out of death and assembles us, for by one Spirit are you assembled into one body and and so it is with the body of Christ. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing scripture at you, I intend for you to carefully unpack these scriptures because within the context that I'm, that I'm providing for the understanding of these scriptures. These were the events that had taken place moments before Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 is recorded. And this is about how Jesus now is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil immediately after He's revealed as the mature Son, the Son of promise. This is my beloved Son and the phrase would be added by the same Father later on at the Mount of Transfiguration when He would say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear He Him or listen to Him. It's the same admonition that arises in the the letter addressed to the Hebrews, to the people who would have had this understanding of the Scriptures, the Hebrews, when He said, God who in different times and in different ways in the past spoke to the fathers by the prophets, in these days He speaks to us in Son. And and He's referencing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and He makes the case for that and He's also referencing all of the sons within the Son. And this is as early as chapter 2 verse 11 of the book of Hebrews where He says, both the one who makes us holy and the ones who are made holy, Christ who makes us holy and ourselves who are made holy, are of the same family. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren and the term there for brothers is the term adelphos in the Greek which means to be of the same womb. And it goes on to say 
that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sing the praises of the Father, just verses below where I'm quoting from, Acts, uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, will sing, he, Jesus, will sing the praises of the Father in the congregation of his brothers. And he defines the brothers as those who have sung to him, we will put our trust in you. So he's speaking about the corporate man. So whatever is descriptive of Christ and his attitude as the fully mature son confronting the devil and speaking the word of the Father in creation, that is our place and position in him to continue to speak. He left us the glory of representing the Father, which, he, which glory He had on the earth. He left that glory to us in John 17. So, and Paul again said, I'm writing uh, to the Ephesians, he says in chapter 1, I'm writing to you that you might understand, that you might understand what are, uh, what is the, your, his inheritance in the saints, what is the working of his mighty power on behalf of those who believe, uh, and so on. So it, 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 this is airtight, this is airtight, but this is the message of wisdom amongst the mature. This is what elevates us, this is what God means to do, how he means to prepare us and the like. But I need to get to the point of talking to, uh, of the devil uh, engaging the mature son and what we may learn from that by juxtaposition to what we learned when in the approaches of the devil to Adam. Because these are the fullness of the schemes that he rolls out against the last and final manifestation of the son uh, who's born uh, in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, I just want to read and as I read I will point out certain things. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the purpose of the Spirit leading him into the wilderness was that he might confront the devil, to be tempted by him. That's why, by the way, he would later tell us to pray in this manner, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all that is evil. Note this also, it is the Spirit who leads him into the wilderness. Hmm? Jesus didn't wander out into the wilderness to go fast for 40 days, the Spirit led him. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, please note this, what did I say about Adam? When he came to tempt Adam, he focused his attention on the joint between the Father and the Son. Did God give you anything to eat around here? Has God actually taken care of you like a son? Um, you know, He doesn't want you to be as gods, that's why He told you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
So what do you expect he will do? He will focus on the weld between the Father and the Son. So what does he say? Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. I'll go ahead and read the next portion of this just to show the continuity and then I'll come back. When that failed, verse 5 says, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, cast yourself down, because it's written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, lest you should dash your foot against a stone. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they will bear you up, lest you should dash your foot against a stone. And then the third temptation is again, the devil takes him into an exceeding high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the word there is the word K-O-S-M-O-S. High mountain shows him uh, all the kingdoms of the cosmos and said, I'll give all these to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only will you serve." In other words, he affirmatively asserts that he is the living presence of the Lord, his Creator. And as such, because Satan is on the earth, he's subject to the dominion of the one who has come to reclaim the authority to rule in creation. The first first Adam had abrogated his responsibility and the enemy was empowered by it. The last Adam is tempted in the same way. And again, I haven't gone through what the temptations actually are, but you can be certain that they all appeal to the soul, just like they all appeal to the soul of the first man, first first Adam. But in this case, he encounters the fully mature Son of God and is rendered powerless. Now I'll go into these trials or these temptations subsequently, but I want to point out the devil left him. The devil left him. If you when you're tempted by the devil, if you submit to God, which is to say you know what the truth is, and by that truth as a sword, you resist the devil, you resist the devil, the devil left him, the devil will leave you. Now, I want to go back in the next broadcast 
and compare how the temptations of Adam and the temptations of Jesus are similar and therefore how the, the schemes that have been become collected up in this great beast at the end of the age will be altogether predictable and altogether similar and what we learn from Jesus and what will become, uh, what will become fully formed in us is exactly how we are going to destroy the enemy. I'm Sam Solon, I hope you will continue to delve into these scriptures with me. Until next time, blessings, bye-bye.